The Lauren Agee case was hastily closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Lauren. This is Without Warning. Warning. The following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature. Since our last episode, we learned that Sherry Smith won her appeal. It was a unanimous decision by a three-judge panel in the Court of Appeals of Tennessee. That is in Nashville. What they did is they overturned a DeKalb County court ruling by Judge Jonathan Young on a civil case of Sherry Smith versus Hannah Nicole Palmer regarding the death of Lauren Taylor Agee. It was the opinion of the appellate court that Judge Young did not rule properly, and the decision has been reversed. The summation of the appeals court decision was a reversal of the grant of summary judgment and the reversal of the ruling on striking of evidence presented by the plaintiff, including testimony from former police officers, current police officers, private investigators, myself, a forensic specialist, as well as Sherry Smith herself. So the judge threw out Sherry Smith's testimony as well as all those other people. The case now will continue as previously scheduled with a jury trial. There's a lot of things going on in this case, a lot of behind-the-scenes things. I want to reach out and thank the people that have come forward and given us information all of this helps. The decision for Sherry was a big win. I will post on our site the Court of Appeals ruling. It is excellent. I will also do a bonus episode on the appeals process and what happened. So that's coming up soon. But today, talking back and forth with questions that you all asked. And of course, once again, I've got to say my Patreon group is pretty fantastic we are going to discuss today is the forensic. So I did the best I could and tried to answer the most asked questions. I'm a private investigator. I became a PI in 2004. Prior to that, I served in the Air Force, spent a career as a special agent in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Upon retirement, I went to uh, Austin Police Department as the Forensic Science Director. I spent a number of years there, then I started a Forensic Science undergraduate degree program and uh, served as a professor there at uh, St. Edwards University in Austin. I have a master's in forensic science that I obtained from George Washington University uh, many years ago. And I've been running my PI business since 2004. I specialize in criminal defense investigations, cold cases, human trafficking, and missing persons. What prompted you to write that memo about the Lauren AG case? After listening to the deposition on your podcast of Jeremy Taylor, I, I just became so incensed. I was angry. I was upset. 
I felt so bad for Lauren's parents, Lauren's friends, and I felt bad for society because Jeremy Taylor displayed such gross incompetence in the conduct of that death investigation. Actually, I should say that it was not a death investigation. He just kind of did a few things, but I, it's a far cry from being a death investigation. In any event, because of my emotional state after listening to his uh, deposition, I just felt compelled to kind of sarcastically document for the public the things that he said. And he didn't go beyond maybe three to six word sentences in the entire deposition. It was ridiculous. I don't think I've been as mad in my career as I have been with Jeremy Taylor. What do you think the responsibility is of the sheriff? Well, that's an excellent question. You know, the sheriff is an elected official. To be elected an elected official, you have to have public recognition. You have to have uh, be appreciated by the people in your community. I mean, even to get elected, you know, you have to be well-liked. Now, to even be in a position to run for sheriff, in my mind, you should have certain professional qualities and characteristics. I'm not from DeKalb County, so I don't know the people there. But listening to the sheriff in his deposition, I I was very uh, disappointed in his ability to communicate. I was disappointed in his uh, lack of expertise and experience. But as a sheriff, to, 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 to drive at your question, as a sheriff, I mean, you're responsible for serving your community in which you're elected to uh, support. I, I don't see, by the way he displayed his abilities in, in support of the Lauren Agee case, I don't see where he provided any support to the community. He did not serve the community. He let down the family. He let down the community for which he serves. He provided no investigative oversight in that case, left the entire investigation pretty much up to Jeremy Taylor and maybe one or two other deputies. And I know Jeremy Taylor does not possess the experience or the expertise really to conduct a death investigation. So this investigation of Lauren Agee's death was was set up for failure, and it was a major fail. So I guess to answer your question, Sheila, the sheriff in this particular case had had a responsibility to of oversight, of management, of leadership. He provided none of those. I was recently told by someone who lives in DeKalb County this past week that Jeremy Taylor went and took a death investigation class. Well, that's interesting. I think that's probably one of the best decisions he's ever made. Unfortunately, it's it's a little too late in the Lauren Agee case. Nevertheless, it it's a good move on his part because I guarantee you he does not want to have to suffer the wrath that he has and will be suffering here in the near future. Homicide detectives, when you're labeled or given the title homicide detective, isn't that after many years of investigating, working under someone, education, isn't that the normal chain of events versus, okay, it's you, you're the detective and you have no experience? Most officers or detectives that are assigned to a homicide detail, before they take on a first case, they they go to a 
specialized training focused entirely and specifically on death investigations. Some jurisdictions, you know, they may not have that luxury. And in a lot of smaller jurisdictions, I've seen personally where police departments will not take on the responsibility to conduct a death investigation, and they will defer that or refer that to like the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation or the Texas Rangers or the Department of Public Safety, just so that an investigation can be competently investigated. And, and, and I think that's a good decision on, on the local agency that declined the investigation or referred it to another agency just so that they can ensure a, a very competent and sufficient investigation is conducted. Was Lauren's body bloated at all from decomposition? Can this be used to help with the time of death? I could not tell that her body was bloated by the pictures. You know, I, I have not, not seen Lauren, unfortunately, in a, in a living state. So I did not have a point of comparison. So I would say no, that her, her body did not appear to me to be, to be bloated. But that's not to say that, that she wasn't slightly bloated. It just did not, it was not readily apparent to me. Does decomposition help with the time of death? If she had been in the water for a long time, would that show and help with the the time of death versus she was freshly put in the water? Time of death is very difficult to determine. It's, It's basically a best guess. You know, we know that the last time that she was seen alive, I understand, was maybe 3 or 3.30 in the morning. It's 13 hours. Uh, they found her at 4.30. So if they saw her at 3.30, it'd be 13 hours later. You know, we don't, from the last time that she was seen at 3.30 to the time she was found, we don't know where her body was during that period of time. In other words, we don't know exactly how long her body was in the water. We know she was. her body was recovered in the water, but we don't know how long her body was in the water. So we don't know that, that where she was. I wish we did know, but we don't. So, so trying to determine time of death is, is, is very difficult. The body temperature is, is a key thing, but because she was in water, that, that kind of changes the whole calculation because of the temperature of the body, the, the rate of cooling of the body. So it would be very difficult to arrive at a at a uh, time of death. Of course, everybody who listens wants to know what time did she die? You know, and again, like you said, it's hard to tell. But do factors like, I know that the skin still tans or burns after death. She was, if she was in the water in that position, she would have sunburn, correct or not? My guess is that she probably would. Does water affect lividity? If she was in the water, she died in the water, would, would lividity be affected by her being in the water? All right, let me, let me just explain a little bit about liver mortis. And, and this, these are good questions. You know, liver mortis is simply described as, you know, discoloration of the body after death. And what happens is blood settles, you know, by gravity, and it settles to the lowest portion of the body. So if you're laying face down, your blood, if you're laying face down, the blood in your body will settle 
to the bottom. In other words, it'll settle from your back going down towards your front. Does that make sense? Yes. The normal color of lividity is purple. That purple is, it, it takes time for that color to develop. And you know, the color increases in intensity after about eight hours, generally speaking. So when I saw the pictures of Lauren, her skin color, the lividity, it appeared to me that she was found face face down in the water and blood was settling because, but the blood was not, her skin color was not purple. It was, it appeared to me to be more red, more fresh. Now, I do know from the medical examiner we spoke to, she said that her lividity did not match her dying at 3.30 in the morning. She said it was a little too fresh. So in my opinion, I would say that she was she was not in the water for an extreme amount of time. I would say she was not in the water for 13 hours based on the color. It's my feeling just based on the pictures, the color of her skin, lividity represented would not indicate to me that she had been face down in the water for 13 hours. Would her skin wrinkle like somebody who had been in the water um, in a bathtub or does that stop also? No, the skin, especially the hands and the feet, you would see pronounced wrinkling. And it doesn't take a long time for that wrinkling to set in. You're going to have the wrinkling in the skin and the feet more than you're going to have in other parts of your body. So I I did see in her pictures that there was uh, a significant amount of wrinkling on her hands and feet. But as you know, going to the pool with, you know, your kids, they can be in for a relatively short period of time and and their hands are going to be, you know, fairly wrinkled. So it's, it's, it's a hard gauge to use to determine how long a person has been in the water. Okay. So to be clear, and I want to be really clear on this, if she died in the water, it wouldn't affect lividity. Lividity is just where the pool of blood ends up, the the furthest part down. So that's, it, it wouldn't matter if she was on the cliff or if she was on the, or in the water, correct? Well, that's an interesting question. The, actually, the, the there, there, there is and there will be lividity regardless of where you die. In the water, dying, being in the water is going to be, different from being on on a hard surface. So, but the blood is still going to settle to the dependent areas, the lowest areas by gravity. So you will still see lividity. And I did notice lividity in her pictures, but the lividity is because she's basically suspended in water, the blood still is settling to her, you know, her stomach, head, legs, knees, feet. So you will have lividity. It will be present despite the fact that she's in water. So the next question, when you die, if your body goes into, let's say, the fetal position? No, your body doesn't go into a fetal position. You're, when you die, your body, your body is going to remain in the position unless it's moved. So it kind of explained that a little bit more. My feeling is based on the pictures that I saw, her arms were were slightly bent. That, in my mind, was the position shortly after her death, where 
rigor mortis started to set in. And rigor mortis, you know, people need to understand, rigor mortis begins within one to three hours. They become more increasingly stiff one to three hours after death. Your body will remain stiff 24 to 36 hours. So it is, it's rigor mortis is fixed up to 24 to 36 hours, and then your muscles begin to uh, become flaccid again. So kind of explain that to the layperson. Rigor mortis sets in, and then then your arms and legs become pliable. Once a person dies, let's say they die alone, unattended, rigor mortis is going to begin to, to develop uh, or set in shortly after you die. And then within one to three hours, like I was saying, one to three hours, the muscles become increasingly stiff. The rigor mortis process, it takes about 10 to 12 hours for rigor mortis to really set in. And then when I talk about rigor mortis, we're talking about the muscles stiffening. And the rigor mortis lasts for about 24 to 36 hours. After that period, the body, the muscles again begin to relax. So if a person dies with their arms over their chest and, and they haven't been moved, their, their arms are going to, their muscles are going to tighten up, stiffen for 10 or 12 hours. And they're going to be very difficult to move after that time. And then after 24 to 36 hours, those muscles are going to be able to begin to relax where the arms can be moved. So I, I think the important thing to remember about the Lauren Agee's body was that with her floating face down, her body began to develop rigor mortis as she was in the water. If a person dies with their arms over their chest and, and they haven't been moved, their arms are going to, their muscles are going to tighten up, stiffen for 10 or 12 hours. And they're going to be very difficult to move after that time. And then after 24 to 36 hours, those muscles are going to be able to begin to relax. If Lauren had drowned, would her, her arms, would they're asking the natural state of someone who is drowned if their arms would be open, not bent up? If you imagine yourself, and, and, I, and I know everyone could probably relate to this visualization, if you imagine yourself floating in water, face down, holding your breath, and just floating, where are your arms and where are your legs? Your arms are generally going to be out to a degree and your legs are, are going to be straight. If, if a person was dead in the water floating like I just described and they were left there for a number of hours, their rigor mortis would set in and the body would remain in that position unless something disturbed that positioning. If her body was still working long enough to create a bruise, wouldn't she be alive to suck in water when she reached the bottom? So what they're trying to figure out is, so she was still bruising. So there are bruises on her body. And if she was alive when she hit the water, she would she would breathe in the water, correct? If she was alive. So when, when Lauren hit the water or was in the water or placed in the water, she may have been alive. She may have been dead already. I don't think anyone can say with 100% certainty if she was dead or alive upon being subjected to the water. I was intrigued or very taken by her injuries. To me, they looked very fresh, very, uh, they, they were definitely anti mortem, happened before death. 
Uh, if you can give a few definitions of that, kind of educate before we talk about that. So postmortem people generally understand because of CSI. Antemortem is prior to death. Before death. Will you explain the terminology? Yeah. All right. Let's talk briefly about antemortem and postmortem. Probably 99% of the population does not know much about antemortem. And we don't hear the word antemortem. We always hear postmortem from the CSI shows, from the news, from media. Antemortem simply meaning before death, postmortem after death. So the body functions differently before death and after death. Before death, your body is, you know, you're, you're breathing, you're taking in oxygen, your blood is pumping. Upon death, everything stops. Everything stops. If you are alive and you receive a blow to the back, let's say, for example, with a baseball bat, your body is going to react significantly to that blow. Your blood vessels are going to burst because of the blood force trauma. You may have a laceration because of the stretching of the skin caused by the, the force. You will have bleeding, possibly significant bleeding in some cases, depending on how hard and where the blow is placed on the body. You're going to have immediate you know, a contusion is going to be caused. A contusion is a bruise. And that bruise is going to continue to, to develop. After you die, let's say, everything stops. Imagine, I know we all have seen pictures of battered spouses, let's say, for example, who taken right after they were assaulted. They may have bruising to the face, to the cheek, to the shoulders. And then pictures are pr taken progressively over, you know, five to seven days. Those bruises, they change in color over time. Now, after you die, that change in color stops. So if a person were injured, let's say falling down a cliff or getting a blow to the back or getting hit by, you know, a hard object, that person is going to have signs of, of trauma. Now, if the individual were to die as a result of the trauma, the bruising activity pretty much is, is halted, is stopped. For the layperson, though, when the heart stops pumping is when they stop bruising. Is that correct? Is that a correct statement? Exactly. When, when the heart stops pumping, the, the bruising stops. So there's no discoloration after that? There's no, it's just done. You're done showing any kind of signs of abuse or trauma. You're right. And it's pretty much going to look like it looked before you died. I think it's important for people to understand that. So looking on uh, pictures of Lauren, there's a couple of pictures of her with her nose and face. It looks like the beginning of a black eye and it looks like her nose was broken. Yeah, I've seen them. To be clear, those injuries are... Antimortem. They occurred while she was living. So she would not have had that bruising or anything had she fallen down the cliff after she died. I, I would say no. You're, you're right. Okay. This question has come up. Actually, I can't tell you how many times, but it's a fascinating theory. It's being discussed in the public arena about her tampon. If a tampon saturated in alcohol were placed into Lauren, would she have to still be alive to have that show up in her blood alcohol reading? Uh, I think she would have to be alive for it to show up in a, in a blood alcohol uh, test. 
Because keep in mind, when you taking that example, an alcohol-saturated tampon, if she were alive when that was placed in her body, it would start to, you know, be um, absorbed by her blood system. And just like alcohol, just like drinking alcohol, just like drugs, it gets into our blood system. If the tampon was placed in prior to death, obviously it would be absorbed in her body. But if it was placed in after her death, would it be absorbed by her body? Okay, so if a blood, if a alcohol-soaked tampon was placed in her body before death, anti-mortem, that alcohol would be absorbed into her system, and therefore a uh, blood screen would be able to depict the presence of that. There would be signs of alcohol in her blood if a tampon soaked in alcohol was placed in that area. How much would be present is is hard to say. You can only determine that based on when the test was run and how when that tampon was inserted, if it was inserted with with alcohol. If it were inserted after she had died, you would not have, of course, her heart pumping, her circulatory system is shut down. So the blood so that alcohol is not going to be absorbed into her bloodstream as it is when she is alive. There would be some alcohol absorbed into the immediate surrounding tissues, but that, in my opinion, would register in a blood alcohol test or a blood screen because that blood has not gone through her system. It's isolated to that part of the body. After going through the medical examiner report, then I gave the pictures from the autopsy and the crime scene. This was his observations which, of course, changed after he was able to take the pictures and match it up to the medical examiner's report, which basically did not add up. After looking at the ME diagram of the injuries, I'm of the impression just by looking at that diagram that those injuries to me are, you know, she's got a lot of them. Uh, But when you look at the photographs, the photographs, in my opinion, are very mild from an injury standpoint to compared to what I was led to believe by examining the autopsy diagram. And I find that pretty interesting. Let me ask the question. If she fell 90 feet from the top to the bottom, it's from what I understand, it's like hitting glass or a cement. Assuming that she fell from from the hammock area, descending 90 feet straight down into the water or into the... uh, the, the bank, I think her injuries would have been more s- significant. In my opinion, in my experience, I don't feel these injuries that I see are from a fall such as we just described. Let me ask this, because I have always said she did fall, but the way that the cliff was set up, there were two areas of camps. So there was an area of a campsite that they never even looked at when they processed the cliff. And then the second campsite where they had all the tents and everything. And it was the area between, I think she fell and that's where her spine became compressed. Is that possible? Most definitely. When we think about a compressed spine, we think about if you're holding, let's say, a rod in your hands, and you bring your your hands together. That's kind of a compression action. 
Would you agree? Yes. And if it's on the back of her head, I, I just don't see the compression action taking place. Um, in, in my mind, the compression, I can easily see it happening more by landing on her feet, causing, it's kind of like when you step off a, a curb and, and you, you stepping off the curb surprises you and you kind of just fall like six inches and then your whole body kind of jolts. Um, I kind of feel like that maybe happened in her case, but in a very extreme fashion. So let's play that out. So let's say she was trying to get away from some unfortunate situation. The the gully between the two campsites, probably about mm, maybe eight feet between, you know, you drop eight feet. So if she dropped eight feet down, hit her feet, went back and hit her head, could she get up and walk? She had a fractured thoracic vertebra. You know, to me, that's that's fairly a fairly significant injury. So I don't. I would say that she probably could not or would not be able to go much further than than that. You know, and, and looking at the autopsy photos, it looked like the injury was pretty significant. Suffer that type of injury, you know, it doesn't re- it doesn't mean you have to fall ninety feet 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 first. You know, it, it vertebra, like you say, it could in your example, it could be a eight foot or less fall uh, that could cause that type of injury. What really strikes me interesting on these photographs and the diagrams are the injuries on her left hand on the outside of the hand. I've been trying to visualize how she obtained those those abrasions and lacerations. And your thought? Well, it could either be possibly defense wounds or it could be, you know, from abrasions caused by the earth, gravel, rocks. First of all, could the two injuries on the back of her shoulders be from dragging, potentially, and could the mud on one side of her body and it's on her foot and her arm be from dragging as well? Answer to both question, yes. I think the marks on her back, uh, based on what I saw, could be uh, injuries received as a result of being dragged. The injuries on her hand possibly being dragged, but I, I would think there would have to be something putting pressure on her hand to the ground to cause the type of injuries that I that I noticed. The biggest thing that Bobby brought up, the blunt force trauma, how significant it was on the back of her head and that tissue would be left on a rock or where she fell. What is your thought about that? Well, I listened to Bobby's session with you and I can't agree more with what he said and everything he said. And and I think it's just because we're receive the same type of training, have the same type of experience under our belt. We see the same things. As far as the blunt force trauma, yeah, I definitely think that type of injury would leave skin, it would leave hair, possibly bone fragments. It, it's very possible. And And given that, there should have been an effort to find the needle in the haystack, look at every possible place. And this is a huge task, but you know what? It's something that has to be done. Just turn over every single stone in that gravel pit, so to speak, to to find the evidence. So I've been up there several times. Actually, Mike and I both have been up there several times. 
When I'm referring to Mike, I'm referring to Mike Kenny, a private investigator that I've worked with in the past. And many of you who know my cases know who he is. He's one of the best investigators I've ever been around. So Mike went up to the cliff with me and he's the one who told me there are snakes up there and made it secure for me. One of the things we did do the very first time, we looked for the blood. Of course, we're way behind the eight ball. Sure. But could the injury have been a rock hitting the back of her head? I've been asked that numerous times. Yeah, sure. It could have been. Absolutely. Okay. So if it's a rock, she was hit from behind and then fell after that. The rock would be gone, but there would be significant bleeding or something around the rocks, correct? The stone, the cliff? A head injury is going to bleed fast and a lot. And when you have blunt force injury like that, you're you're going to have a fair amount of blood spatter anyway. So, you know, being out in the open in the environment, such as where she was, it may be difficult to, you know, find remnants of blood, like on leaves or on rocks, whatever. But it's definitely quite possible that it existed and it still may exist. It's just hard to hard to tell. What do you look for in a witness statement? What do I look for in a witness statement? A, a number of things. If I'm interviewing people that have been around one or two other people for an extended period of time, and then I interview them, I take one of the witnesses and I interview them about you know what what their activities were, what were their actions with this other person. You know, I would I would expect them. And I would want them to tell me every single detail, every everything from start to finish of the time that, that they were with that person. If they weren't telling me, giving me the information that kind of filled that whole period of time that they were with that person, then I would start directing my questions to be more specific. If you're with somebody you want to help and you want to tell more, usually give more information than is needed. Right. When you're investigating, the ones that have something to hide give short, non-descriptive answers versus somebody who has nothing to hide just goes on and on, like I am, go on and on and on. (laughs) When I'm investigating a case and it involves multiple witnesses that have knowledge of a certain act or certain event, you know, I want to try to get as much information from them as possible. And and basically it boils down to the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And there is a lot of information in answering those questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. When I interview someone about a, a particular event, I have to keep them focused on what I'm interested in because they they will just go on and on and on and tell me stuff that is both relevant and irrelevant. To me, when I assess that person as a witness, based on what they're telling me, it gives me a good idea as to what their level of involvement might be. So someone who has got nothing to hide is going to just have verbal diarrhea. They are going to tell me everything. And and a lot of times I find myself having to just keep them on track. Now, if someone, on the other hand, witnessed something and they don't want me to know the truth, they want to conceal the truth, they're just going to be very succinct in their answers, very terse, very brief, non-descriptive, one-word answers. They're not going to say much. I have to literally pull it out of them. But that's good because it gives me a good indication as to 
how I need to really treat this person. This person obviously may be more, more involved than what they're leading me to believe. I know that the audio was a little touchy at some points, but I really appreciate you all listening and asking the questions. Thank you for all the support and the listeners and sharing. It's made a difference. You all made the difference. Thank you. Lauren's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared and hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at sheilawysaki.com.